Hello, and welcome to Conversations Towards Reconciliation with Alderville First Nations Chief Tainar Simpson. I'm your host, Robert Washburn. This program is coming to you from the Williams Treaty Territory and Northumberland 89.7 FM. For the next 30 minutes, we will bring you important stories and issues facing Indigenous and non-Indigenous people living here in Northumberland County and across the country. It is your chance to become better informed, more engaged, and empowered as we all move together on the path to reconciliation. So join us for the next step on this journey. I'm so pleased to be in conversation with today, Tainar Simpson, Chief of the Alderville First Nations. Good to see you. Great. Thank you, Robert. It's good to be here today. Earlier this month was Treaties Recognition Week. So let's start with some basics. What is a treaty? A treaty is an agreement, usually a peace or friendship agreement between two nations, uh, two sovereign nations. So um, usually each side is trying to get something out of it. And in Canada, with the uh, First Nations treaties, uh, we got an agreement to uh, share and coexist on the lands we now know as Canada. Now, oftentimes when we read about treaties or we hear people talking about treaties, there's this term people use about treaty rights. What does treaty rights mean to us? Well, a treaty right is given by the treaties uh, to each side. Um, so a treaty right isn't just a First Nations right, it's also a non-Indigenous right. Uh, when we agreed to share the land, uh, originally these were what are called unceded uh, territories. So they were all Indigenous lands and the, um, the settlers had no claim to them. They had no rights on the land. So by having these treaties and an agreement to live on them and share them, um, the, the the new colonists, the settlers, were given bestowed rights to occupy the land. So they actually have a treaty right to live on Canada, uh, just like uh, First Nations also have their treaty rights to their land for hunting and harvesting. Another term that comes up often is something called treaty relationship. What is a treaty relationship? Well, a treaty relationship would be uh, incumbent upon the specifics of each treaty. Some treaties uh, went to went through uh, a minutia of details on what would be given um, every year, maybe like a hat and a coat and $5. So they were very specific in what they wrote out. Uh, so that would be, um, that would fall under that category. Uh, but other treaties were more vague. Um, so right now we're going through a lot of the um, uh, specific claims to what these treaties really meant. Does this, this $5 still mean $5 today? Or is it what $5 back then would be equal to in today's dollars? So, and um, that would be that type of a treaty relationship. But on the broader scale, uh, Canada itself is um, uh, governed under the principle of uh, treaty federalism, which means the uh, federal government gets their powers from the treaty signed with Indigenous people. So it's not something that's commonly accepted or in the discourse, but um, that's pretty much how uh, the, the country functions under a treaty federalist uh, uh, umbrella. All right, so let's bring it down to, to local then. What is the treaty that relates to the Alderdeville First Nation? 
we are in the Williams Treaty um, territory. So there are seven Williams Treaty First Nations. There's Alderville, um, Curve Lake, Scugog, Hiawatha, Beausoleil, Rama, and uh, Chippewas of Georgina Island. So those are the seven Williams Treaty First Nations, and they make up um, a, a pretty good section of land from Toronto, um, Blue Mountain, up to Kearney, uh, all the way over to, to Belleville. So it's quite a large territory. And we just celebrated, well, uh, celebrates the wrong term, we just acknowledged the 100th uh, year anniversary of the signing of the Williams Treaty First Nations in 1923. My grandfather was there. He was 10 years old at the time. Uh, but it's it's well known as uh, perhaps one of the worst uh, treaties for Indigenous people in Canada. Before we explore that, is there any stories you can share about memories from your grandfather uh, about being there? Well, my grandfather knew it was a very significant event um, because what we were in was considered unceded territory. So there was a lot of development in Toronto and around Toronto at the time. And then it came to the attention of um, the powers that be that none of the lands had actually been, um, they called it signed away or surrendered or ceded. Um, but really what we saw was we were agreeing to share the lands uh, with the newcomers. So uh, my grandfather knew it was a, a major event. It was a major milestone in the relationship between our people and Alderville um, and and uh, the, the federal government, as well as the provincial government. It's kind of hard to, we often think of treaties being something that were signed hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And this one was only signed in 1923, as you said, 100 years ago. Now, there are some historians that will say that the government wanted to move quickly to get the Williams Treaty signed back then. And it was already people, as you say, were using much of the land in question. Historians will talk about there are fears amongst government officials that the First Nations could have been going to the League of Nations or to the British Parliament to appeal. Tell us the story behind this treaty and all of these dynamics that were going on and what resulted from them. Well, um, you can consider the Williams Treaty First Nation, um, well, the Williams Treaty itself as the last of the numbered treaties, which was a process that had started 50 years before the Williams Treaty came in. And, um, and when that first happened, uh, the federal government took more of a negotiation uh, framework where they sat down over a course of sometimes a, a few years to hammer out the details uh, to the point where the First Nation uh, chiefs were able to sign off. Um, but then what came back from Ottawa was a, a treaty that often didn't resemble at all the negotiations that had gone on. And it was pretty much just the land surrender, which is what they were trying to go for. Uh, so by the time 50 years later, when you get to the Williams Treaty, uh, they they were kind of they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew it was a land surrender in their mind, and they didn't care about it being a treaty per se. Uh, but it was a treaty. We negotiated it, uh, and what we discussed didn't show up in the treaty itself, obviously. So um, it was designed as a as that land surrender. So that's why we had the. Um, uh, Williams Treaty Settlement Agreement in 2018, where they apologized and made amends for it. Uh, we were given um, uh, funds to buy back um, 11,000 acres of land, which represents 90% of our original uh, reserve territory that had been taken away from us over the course of the um, the Indian Act and then the federal government taking our land. So there was always a, a means to take our land, but never a means to give our land away. So that process actually started in the 1980s, and it took until just five years ago to complete the agreement. 
why did it take so long from the 80s till 2018 to get resolved? What were the disputes that were going on and, and the, the points of conflict? Uh, well, I think early on, the uh, the federal government realized that they were in the wrong. Um, they were trying to stick to the word of the treaty and saying the treaty doesn't give you these rights. Um, but then we were going back and saying, well, we have our um, our traditional knowledge, our word of mouth, that indeed these things were discussed. So it became a he said, uh, she said kind of thing. But they were sticking to the word of the treaty itself, which had no bearing on the discussions that had been going on when we signed the treaty. So um, it took a lot of lawyers and a lot of um, back and forth before it was tiny concessions. So it was a number of small concessions over time that built up to, to become the large concession that we were able to finally get and, and reach the agreement. What do you think happened in those discussions that slowly changed the government's position? Uh, there would have been letters, there would have been evidence. Um, so there would have been, uh, at the time, probably people that knew what was going on in 1923, given their recollections. There would have been correspondences internally that the government uh, maybe was writing about it that uh, would have been uh, brought forth during discovery. So all the uh, background information that uh, we uh, knew was going on probably would have been collected and then shown exactly what the government had been trying to do with uh, uh, the annihilation of our treaty rights. How did the settlement impact Alderville? Well, the settlement agreement was, I'm going to say, divisive, uh, because instead of giving our land back, the government gave us money to buy the land back. So when it went to the community, um, there was a, a segment of the population that uh, wanted it as a, a per capita distribution, uh, divided up evenly across everybody, and then that was it. Um, uh, the, the chief and council today took a different, more measured approach where they gave away um, you know, 50%. And then the other 50% was put into a trust for the purpose of building lands and creating programming for the First Nation. So now we have um, uh, about a dozen programs that have come out of that, uh, like for um, health and recreation, um, things just to help out uh, elders, uh, education boosts. Um, so we can, everyone who applies for uh, education funding gets it. Uh, so we don't deny anyone for any programming they want to take so it's been really good for that um because really the brunt of the loss was um borne by the elders who had spent their whole life not being able to harvest and fish and hunt on our traditional territory running from the game warden being thrown in jail so really it was it, it was hard to justify giving it all to uh, people who weren't specifically impacted by the injustice of the the Williams Treaty. Did, did Alderville receive a set amount of money? Yes, we did. And so half went to the uh, PCD and the other half went into a trust, which we, we are managing quite well. And uh, it's actually been uh, very well in terms of um, uh, 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 asset gain. How, how much was that? I don't have the exact number, but uh, we have uh, close to 70 million in trust right now. What is it important for listeners to understand when it comes to the Williams Treaty and its impact on non-Indigenous people living in Northumberland County? Well, I think it's important to understand the treaty territory that you live in. Um, 
it's if you don't know where you're coming from, then you can't really um, talk uh, knowledgeably about the issues. So a lot of people don't know what the Williams Treaty is. They don't know that they live within the Williams Treaty catchment area, but their treaty rights come from the Williams Treaty. So uh, it's one of those things where they might not realize they've got Williams Treaty rights, but in fact they do. Um, so I'd say it's incumbent upon uh, everybody to to learn about the Williams Treaty and, and learn about uh, their rights that they've been given and the treaty relationship that it's created. And for to be really clear for our listeners, what are non-Indigenous people's rights in the Williams Treaty? Um, they get to, to live <laughs> here. Uh, uh, they get to call their home their home, their backyard, their backyard. Um, there's no, um, no one's going to come and say, hey, guys, you got to get out of here now. <laughs> Your time's up. Um, so they have their rights to, to live here. Well, on that positive note, we'll take a break. Please stay tuned to hear more conversations towards reconciliation with Tanar Simpson. This is Northumberland 89.7 FM, your local source for news and information. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope you're enjoying our chat today. I'm Robert Washburn, and I'm here with Tanar Simpson, the chief of Alderville First Nations. We are so glad you're joining us. I'm glad to be back in conversation with Tanar Simpson, the chief of the Alderville First Nation. We're going to talk about solar farms because there was a, a recent celebration of the 10th anniversary of the creation of a solar farm. Now, it was the first of its kind, as it was owned 100% by a First Nation. Tell us about the celebration. Well, it's, uh, as you said, it was the um, the 10-year anniversary of the turning of the switch on our Alderville solar farm, which is a 5.7 megawatt uh, energy project. So um, it, it had its start in um, when the provincial government first was introducing the FIT program, the feed and tariff program, and it was uh, offering incentives for um, uh, entities, large entities, organizations to create solar farm uh, energy, uh, to create a solar farm. So Alderville was thinking about it, and we we had a couple of people that really were pushing for this, and that's really what made it happen. So we started looking into what type of project we would have, where it was going to be built, um, where we're going to get funding to to build it. So really, um, even though we owned it 100%, uh, it was the banks that uh, financed us um, uh, for the build. So it was about 23 million dollars, I think, to build the project. Uh, and when it was done, um, it was the largest wholly indigenous owned energy project in the country and i believe it still is uh there's larger indigenous owned energy projects but they they have partners uh that are not first nation so we have a 20-year agreement to supply power to the grid and uh so the 10-year anniversary was basically the, the halfway point and we were originally told that at this point is when we should start thinking about what the future of the solar farm holds well before we get into the future well how do you celebrate a solar farm do you have cake do you have a party what do you do well that's a very good question in fact we had all of that uh so we have um the, the solar farm was actually built on an old farm property. So there was a large existing um, uh, barn. Well, it was more like a, a 
like a large storage uh, building. So we put some nice tables in, we got door prizes, we did have cake, uh, balloons, live entertainment and music, and we also had uh, golf carts to uh, to take um, uh, people who came uh, around the solar farm just to, to get a good view of it. So it was actually a really well attended event. Um, even though it was on a on a weekend and it was raining, um, we we managed to get a lot of the community members out, and the, everyone had a great time. There was speeches, and uh, uh, regional deputy grand chief uh, Jim Bob Marsden was there with his band, so he uh, was able to provide the entertainment for everyone. So uh, overall, it was uh, I want to say it was a, one of the better events because all our events are great, but uh, it was definitely a, a real pleasure for for that event. My understanding, it took quite some time to get all the pieces in place. What were the largest hurdles that Elderville faced when they were trying to put this all together? I think coming up with the organizational structure was the most difficult part. Um, so to satisfy the funders' requirements, we had to jump through a lot of different hoops. We had to set up a lot of different corporations. So we eventually created an Alderville um, uh, Solar Limited Partnership. So that became um, the, the main entity. And then the, the general partner being Alderville First Nation and the limited partner was another corporation we set up called Alderville Solar Incorporated. And then there was another um, uh corporation we had to set up to meet one of the funding requirements and that was the uh, Alderville Community Development Corporation the ACDC so we had to have all these different structures and the uh, the org chart was kind of crazy but eventually we we satisfied all the needs and the most important part was that um, the the farm itself had to be on fee simple lands which are are lands that aren't on the reserve um, because the banks weren't going to back a project that was on uh, reserve land because um, if something did go wrong, they wouldn't be able to claim the asset back because they couldn't claim uh, reserve land. So we had to make sure that we had a, a nice space on fee simple land. Who built the solar farm? The solar farm was, uh, we had some uh, consultants, um, but the farm itself was built by our own team. Um, uh, member Cody Simpson, who is a welder, trained a large crew of uh, welders, and uh, we had a racking crew. So the um, the nuts and bolts of the the farm itself was put together by our members and uh, uh, other community members um, uh, within the uh, Alderville Roseneath area. Who maintains it? Well, we keep an eye on it, but we have um, a third party um, company called Spark Energy who monitor it in real time. So if anything goes wrong, then um, they know before anybody else and they can send crews out to fix it. They just, uh, they ask for uh, permission to to come and fix it. They want to make sure that we approve the fix. Um, so they, uh, we give them the permission and they come and they fix it. Uh, but if it's something that might not show up on their computer screen, we have uh, maintenance crews that are always there maintaining the weeds, uh, making sure that the solar uh, panels aren't blocked by debris or snow. So when those guys go around and they, they check it, they'll be able to identify if there's like, you know, um, uh, another issue that, uh, that needs attention. Again, are these all Indigenous companies and Indigenous peoples? Um, no, they're not. So Spark Energy is not Indigenous, um, uh, but that's okay. We like them anyway. Uh, but uh, um, the, our, a lot of our maintenance crew is Indigenous, um, but uh, 
um yeah no they're they're not and there's no um, specific requirement for that has it generated any revenues for the community well it has so uh being uh financed by lenders the the vast majority of the uh the revenue goes to paying back those loans so in about five years the loans will be entirely paid off and then we should be earning close to three million dollars in revenue uh until for the last uh, five years of the project or so um but there is some small revenues that are left over after every year because uh the amount that we pay each year uh, back to loans is going down because we're paying off that um uh the amount of the loan so uh it hasn't been terrible uh large amounts but uh it, it's enough to you know uh, start funding some programs what is the community's feelings about the solar farm 10 years later well, I think they're getting excited knowing that it's we're about to finally start reaching that uh, area of profitability that we've been hoping for. Um, like right now, people want to know what's the solar farm doing for them. And right now, it's not doing a terrible amount. They're not noticing it. But uh, now that um, with the funds start um, flowing, we're hoping to provide like a, an energy credit uh, for, for our members because we know that uh, heating and uh, oil, propane, whatever they're heating with is going up. And yes, it's an electric farm, but um, if we were to supply a credit, then the, the members could use it for for any energy bills that they want. So that's something that we, we're looking at getting going as soon as there's enough funding. Uh, another way that we can increase the, um, the revenue from it is by accessing our um, Williams Treaty Trust. So there's been talk about you know borrowing against our trust to pay off the loans and then we pay back the trust on a better interest rate so at least that interest that we're paying goes back into all their bills so there's a lot of different ways that we can um, maximize the the revenue from the solar firm has it proven to be a good investment Yes, 100% it has. It's uh, put us on the map of uh, clean energy producers. Uh, it brings us to the table anytime that there's an energy project or energy discussions. Uh, we speak um, annually, usually at the uh, um, uh, energy conferences. So ISO has an annual conference. CANSIA has a conference. So we we're, we try to be there and uh, share our experiences and our knowledge. So it's um, it's been our ticket to the table for uh, more more discussions on energy projects. So what is the future for the solar farm? Well, um, one of the things that we did at the 10 year anniversary, it wasn't just a party. We actually had a survey for the members to fill out and uh, we were providing options for what the membership wanted. And the three main options um, were to one, try to enter into another um, uh, contract agreement uh, to provide energy to the, the grid. The other option was to uh, go fully independent and start uh, uh, an energy, um, like a power corporation, so that we could sell it on our own terms um, to whatever buyer, highest buyer probably. And then the third option was to uh, decommission it, tear it down and recycle everything. So uh, we just had to put that down there because it is an option. So uh, we're going over what the results were. Um, but uh, uh, the first two options are, are going to be good for revenue 
mean, the selling back to a grid on a contract, it would be the easiest to less work for us to do. Creating our own energy um, power corporation would be a good idea, especially if we are going to do uh, uh, more energy production. Uh, we could do a, a addition to the solar farm. We could do wind farm. We could do battery battery energy storage systems. So it really opens the door to, to taking our green energy uh, momentum uh, to the next level. You and I have talked about some very specific things that are going on in Alderville. What are some of the other things that are going on in the community over the next month? We just had our fall feast where uh, we had 91 community members come out and, and hear about what's, uh, what Alderville is going to be doing in the future. And one of the big ones, again, getting back to power was, uh, you know, partnering with uh, a lot of these new energy projects happening on our territory. So uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but anytime there's going to be development in our treaty territory, we need to be consulted about it. So before shovels go in the ground, they call us, they ask us if we have any concerns, any archaeological or environmental environmental concerns and if it's uh if it's a revenue generating project uh, oftentimes they'll um, offer participation and um, partnership in these projects so that's really where we're at right now we uh, are kind of being inundated with uh, with potential projects right now so we put a lot of our efforts into these potential partnerships and the community at the fall feast uh, gave us the support to go ahead and keep uh, pursuing these uh, arrangements so that was good to hear um, so um, it's really important for us to to take what the community wants. And if they had been against these projects, then we would have to say, sorry, guys, the community says no. Um, and if it was like a coal burning um, facility, then I'm sure the answer would have been no. But seeing as this is green energy, it's going to be helpful for the environment, you know, less carbon into there. Um, uh, it was accepted. So that's one of the big things we got on the go right now. So I, I hope we'll look forward to talking about more details around that. Are there any other events or things going on in Alderville that uh, you'd like to share? But right now, like we shut down for the Christmas break. So for about two weeks, uh, everyone just shuts down and goes their own ways. And then we reconvene after the holidays. Uh, so this is probably our slow time of year. Uh, I mean, we're all getting ready for the winter. Um, there's a lot of hunting going on right now. So a lot of the boys are in the the, the bush and they're getting a lot of moose. Uh, one of our members just had a, a big feast out, in, uh, out on the bush and he invited all the members out. So right now, I guess, uh we're we're preparing for the winter kind of like in the the traditional days we a lot of canning's going on we're um, just uh, making sure that uh we got our stocks uh and stores ready for the winter Taylor simpson i want to thank you for being in conversation with me today wonderful it's a pleasure to be here i want to thank alderville first nations chief Taylor simpson for talking to me today i want to thank you for joining our conversation and I hope you enjoyed this time to learn more about what's going on, the stories and issues facing Indigenous people living in Northumberland and elsewhere. That's all for this week. I'm Robert Washburn. Join us again next time for Conversations Towards Reconciliation with Tanar Simpson. <laughs>